Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hi, everyone. I'm Dan Pfeiffer, a co-host of Pod Save America. <laughs> oh, friends of the pod here. Excellent. Uh, and, a former, and also a fellow Obama administration alum. Samantha Power is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, a war correspondent, a academic, a diplomat. She was Barack Obama's UN ambassador in the second term, also the world's biggest Red Sox fan. <laughs> she, she is someone that, whose intellect and morality President Obama has depended on for over a decade. She's someone he cares deeply about and respects deeply. And she is also, and most importantly, right this second, the author of a fabulous new memoir, The Education of Idealists. Please welcome Sam Power to the stage. (laughs) Hi, Sam. Hi, Dan. I'm, I'm very excited to be here with you tonight. Your book, as I said to you backstage, was a beautiful, beautifully written. And you're going to share a bit of it with us here tonight. I am. And first, let me thank everybody for being here. This is, um, it just feels uh, very warm and a bit electric. And it's very moving to me that you all came out. And it's so moving that Dan, who is basically a cult, iconic... <laughs> Hero like David young... Koresh cult, or <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, who has such uh, has done so much since leaving office uh, to motivate and to activate the constituents that we need in order to retake and reclaim um, our country and our values. And so, thank you, Dan. Thank you. And um, let me also thank the Commonwealth Club, of course, and George Dobbins and Kara Iwahashi for uh, organizing this. It's also co-sponsored by Facing History, the UN Association, and the Bernard Osher Foundation. So thank you all. Um, Again, I'm very touched uh, by all the support that I've been getting on day five of my little book tour. Um, So I did want to read just, you know, we're going to get into whatever Dan wants to get into, but... um, just because I think uh, part part of what happens when uh, Obama alums see each other is there's the the memories of what was, um, <laughs> but there's also the, the the personal bonds because whether it was the campaign where Dan uh, served as I guess deputy communications director in the primary that Obama won the primary analogous to the one that we're going through right now and then communications director in the actual campaign. Um, or Life in the White House, which, of course, I write about in the book um, and Dan has written about and talks about. Uh, But fundamentally, all politics and policy is personal, and so much of it is about relationships and people and our foibles and ups and downs. And so I thought I would give you a flavor of that uh, just by reading uh, two short excerpts, one from the campaign and one from when I was UN ambassador, and then we'll have a discussion. So uh, this is from uh, a chapter called, unsurprisingly, Yes, We Can. And um, 
taking off Dan's recent amazing book. Um, but it's about when the campaign had just started and before candidate Obama, Senator Obama, was getting the kind of traction that he would later get. And so this is a scene from the spring of 2007. As I worked at my computer in Winthrop, Massachusetts, in the spring of 2007, I received an email that was clearly not intended for me. Cass Sunstein, a University of Chicago law professor and an Obama campaign advisor, had written, quote, Martha, isn't this law group a disaster, as in worse than, say, anything? End quote. I had met this Cass once before at an academic conference. We had struck up a lively conversation, and I had learned that, like me, he was an avid squash player, but we hadn't kept in touch. Cass had seemed almost incurably cheerful during our brief interaction, so the sour tone of his email surprised me. But since it was addressed to Harvard Law School professor Martha Minow, I deleted the message and went about my day. I soon realized, however, that I was not the only accidental recipient of Cass's private lament. Neither Cass nor I were full-time or paid campaign advisors, as Dan was. We were professors who contributed policy ideas by telephone and email to candidate Obama's campaign and who spoke publicly on his behalf. Obama's staff, core staff, had assembled a working group of legal scholars to inform his views about an assortment of pressing issues, including how to go about closing the Guantanamo Bay detention facility and reversing President Bush's licensing of torture. Obama and Cass had been colleagues at the University of Chicago, where they both taught classes on constitutional law. With a possible Obama speech on the rule of law approaching, the group, this little informal group, had produced nothing. In expressing his frustration to Minow via email, Cass had mistakenly autofilled the entire senior staff of the Obama campaign. <laughs> his criticism of the law group caused wide offense. <laughs> Danielle Gray, our mutual friend, the immensely capable lawyer in charge of domestic policy, took it as an insult to her leadership and forwarded the email to me, saying, can you believe this asshole? <laughs> A friend of hers converted part of Cass's email into a large poster and hung it on the wall at campaign headquarters. <laughs> Danielle Gray, worse than, say, anything? <laughs> I felt for this Cass. Like most mortals, I had suffered my own email mishaps. Not long before, I'd been set up on a blind date by Tom Keenan, a friend and fellow professor whom I'd come to know through his research on mass atrocities. The date had not gone well. I wrote to Tom with a rundown of all I did not like about his friend, <laughs> asking how he could conceivably, conceivably have thought that we might get along. I stressed that the incompatibilities were deep, and I signed off the email, quote, I think, Tom, as the old saying goes, you can only make them dress better, end quote. <laughs> As soon as I hit send, I heard a ping in my inbox. It was the message I had just sent, freshly delivered as an incoming email. Within seconds of that first ping, I heard a second. I had received a note from Tom, which simply read, you didn't. 
I put my head in my hands and slowly typed, I did. <laughs> Tom and I were part of a listserv. <laughs> it gets much worse. <laughs> of thousands of genocide survivors, <laughs> genocide scholars, and genocide activists, and I had accidentally sent the note savaging the blind date to the entire list. Years later, when I was serving as U.S. ambassador to the U.N., people who had received my email would still exuberantly quote my words back to me. You can only make them dress better. I could go on. I married him. I did marry him. So absent the email, I don't know if I'd have two kids and be married, but shows you serendipity. All right. The, the next scene um, I want to read just quickly is, uh, as Dan recalls, uh, one of the uh, more difficult parts of the year uh, for me every year for the eight years I was in the Obama administration was the president's annual trip to the UN General Assembly. And for those of you who've lived in New York or had the misfortune of being in New York, uh, this <laughs> week, any year, it's when all the heads of state of the world gather and the city basically shuts down and the traffic is impossible. Um, and for us, as uh, parts of the president's team, it was stressful because it was a lot of high stakes, potentially running into dictatorial leaders, you know, in the corridors and photos being taken or trying to do really important business as well to advance, for example, the Iran negotiations or the climate negotiations. So it was a lot of stress it concentrated in a short period of time. So this is a scene uh, from my very last um, experience of help, helping prepare President Obama for the General Assembly or experiencing myself uh, the gathering of all of these heads of state um, uh, at the UN. And I think this is just about to start now, um, but in a different set of circumstances. Um, <clears throat> the annual UN General Assembly gathering in September of 2016 was a bittersweet occasion. Advising President Obama, I had attended and helped shape each of his seven previous appearances at these meetings. This would be his last. A few days before Obama's arrival, New York City workers began erecting barriers to close off roads near the UN. As she had every year during this event, Maria Castro, our nanny for two kids, struggled to navigate the five heavily policed blocks that separated the Waldorf Astoria, which housed the ambassador's residence, and our daughter's preschool. Cass again resolved to remain in Cambridge for the week to avoid being manhandled by security as he tried to reach our apartment. I would not miss these disruptions after I left the UN, but when heads of state gathered for the General Assembly, I still could not shake the sense that together we could accomplish something. This potential had not been realized nearly as often as I had hoped, but I would, I would miss assembling coalitions to combat the world's hardest problems, as well as that tingling sense of possibility. I should just for context say that one of the things that we did in my four years as UN ambassador is promote the cause of LGBT rights at the UN, um, holding the first ever UN Security Council uh, meeting on violence being committed by ISIS, against LGBT people, and getting the UN for the first time to recognize LGBT rights as human rights uh, within the UN norms. Thank you. That's just context then for what, for what follows. Um, 
On one of the last nights of Ungo Week, as it was known, I had dinner with a foreign minister who had also become a friend. I'd worked closely with him over the years and was grateful for the tough votes he had instructed his UN ambassador to take. He had a marvelous sense of humor that most ministers did not display, and I'd grown very fond of him. We spent the dinner discussing China, Syria, the upcoming U.S. presidential election, and his country's ethnic tensions. Then, toward the end of the meal, I offhandedly mentioned that I had gotten permission from New York City for the UN's Human Rights Office to paint in rainbow colors the First Avenue crosswalk that many VIPs would use to enter the UN. Now, foreign ministers and heads of state were traversing our so-called path to equality as they walked into an institution that had only recently recognized LGBT rights. For a split second, I thought I caught a flash of interest on the minister's face, but he quickly changed the subject. Despite our friendship, I had never asked him about his personal life. As we got up to say goodnight, I heard myself whisper in his ear, any chance you'd like to come see the crosswalk? Suddenly, he broke out in a broad, mischievous smile. In that moment, he saw that I knew and understood what he still could not advertise in his own country. At 12.30 a.m. on a breezy September night, the minister walked slowly across the rainbow crosswalk toward the UN, where the flags of his country, my country, and all the countries of the world flew each day. Thanks to the street lamp, I was able to see his expression as he approached my side of First Avenue. He bore a look I hadn't seen before. It combined relief, delight, and a deep calm. It was the look of someone being fully himself. Thanks. Before we get started in the conversation, I do... I want to tell you a story that I don't think I've ever told you before. Uh-oh. It, no, it's good. Um, when I was first going to work for President Obama in January, it was, de- this was December of 2006, and he's thinking of running for president. I went to go meet with Pete Rouse, who is our mutual friend, who was Barack Obama's chief of staff in the Senate. And Pete, who I had worked for for many years, was trying to convince me that A, Barack Obama was going for president, B, he could win, and C, he was putting together a really good team. And so he was going over the team. It's going over people who are now famous, like David Axelrod and David Plouffe and Robert Gibbs and Alyssa Mastromonaco. And he got to the foreign policy part, which I thought I would not care about, other than I knew that my friend Dennis McDonough was helping. And he was mentioning names. And he mentioned your name, which very much piqued my interest because I had read your first book, and it had meant a ton to me. It was very powerful. And so then flash forward... I'm not saying you're the reason I joined the Obama campaign, but it didn't hurt. (laughs) But then, uh, flash forward a few months later, I'm in Chicago, and the foreign policy team has decided that Barack Obama is not talking enough about foreign policy. And this is before our friend Ben Rhodes joined the campaign, so there was no one on the communications team to talk to. So I got on a call with what would turn out to be two UN ambassadors, (laughs) you and Susan, who told me in no uncertain terms that... uh, Barack Obama needed to talk more about foreign policy on the stump. And I was a little starstruck. I'm not going to lie. So there you You go. never acted starstruck. Well, I was trying to play it cool. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) So Dan and I, the other thing he confessed, so I have a chapter in the book that's about making the transition from being kind of total outsider, critic, journalist, 
a person who got kicked off the campaign, uh, to then being in the White House. And I use an expression, which some of you may have heard, which is never compare your insides to someone else's outsides. And it's my learning, part of my education is learning that I felt I was the only one who was completely confused. I couldn't find the Oval Office. I got lost, like, going to the Oval Office to brief the president for the first time. I ran back to my office. I was five months pregnant. I Googled Oval Office map, <laughs> literally. And I got a map off the Washington Post website, and then it was not drawn to scale because it was they were, like, so interested in where David Axelrod was yes. sitting in relation to Barack Obama and where Valerie... And it wasn't, like, actually what stairs do you go up to get to the <laughs> Oval Office you can be in your first meeting with the president of the United States... But, um, but I write in the book that, that over time, and a lot of time, I gradually realized that a lot of people felt the way I did, that they didn't, they, that they, however assured they looked, they had a lot of the same thought bubbles that I did. But if you had asked me previous to this evening um, whether Dan Pfeiffer was one of those people who you know, might have found the early months confusing or frustrating. I would have said, no way, that guy, like, he was so assured. He knew exactly what he was doing. Um, and Dan said to me, that chapter you wrote about how you felt at the beginning, you know, I felt exactly the same way. And, it, and so it just proves, again, it's like never compare your insides to somebody else's outside. Like everybody's kind of acting as if. And then eventually we catch up with our as if yeah. self um, yeah. and, and learn at least some part of what we should be doing. The, uh, it's the fake it till you make it strategy. Fake it till you make it. But yes, it, I would highly recommend that, obviously the whole book, but that part of the book, as I was reading the book over the last few weeks, it really did, like, I hadn't thought about those first, like, I thought about the things that President Obama did or the things we got to see in those ones, but I hadn't thought about how I felt for a long time. And it was, it was hard. Like, those were hard, depressing months. But we're not going to focus on the depressing part. <laughs> we're not going to do that. Let's start, let's start this conversation at the very beginning. Right, you in your life envisioned yourself at one point on a path to being a sports journalist. How did you go from being a sports journalist to a war correspondent? Um, yes, I did. So I started, and the, the the book starts in Ireland, um, in Dublin's fair city, uh, where my parents lived when I was a child. I came to America when I was nine. And first, how did I get interested in sports? The, the, while I was in Dublin, my mother was desperate to become a doctor, a medical doctor, and had been discouraged from doing so because she was a woman, largely, and they didn't have science offerings for women, but had decided very, you know, late in life by the, by the standard of those times to go back to medical school. So she was consumed with trying to become a doctor. And my dad spent most of his time at a pub, in Dublin, called Hardigan's. Um, you can visit it today, um, as I made the mistake of doing just after I was kicked off the Obama campaign. Um, uh, I returned to it for the first time since my childhood. But it, it's a very, it was a very formative place for me because I had a kind of little girl's relationship with her father, and we spent all this time there, me sort of in the basement reading mystery novels, him upstairs with a, a row of pint glasses, Guinness glasses, but there was sports, sports, and more sports in the pub, and I watched my father kind of sounding off and having opinions, and I learned a lot about sports. And then my mother, their marriage broke up in part because of all the drinking, and my mother came to America, and we moved to Pittsburgh in 1979, which you can date yourself by knowing what that was in sports terms, 
but it was the year that the Pittsburgh Pirates won the World Series and the Pittsburgh Steelers won the Super Bowl. Um, and that's where I arrived. And it was a little bit, I mean, I, I even use the analogy, I think, in the book, arriving at the White House, as we both did, and kind of learning the lingo and the currency. It was like learning a new language. My first experience of that was arriving in Pittsburgh and kind of trying to drop my Irish accent and trying to fit in and trying to dress like everybody else. But sports was the currency. Um, And then I went to college, and there were all kinds of opportunities to be a sports reporter. And I was part of a group of people who um, hosted a sports radio show. I did the play-by-play for the (laughs) Yale men's and women's basketball team. I was really serious about this. But then the summer after my freshman year, and um, I describe it in the book in a chapter called Tank Man, and that might clue some of you, but I was in Atlanta working at the CBS affiliate, taking notes on a San Francisco Giants-Atlanta Braves game, as it happens, when the footage from Tiananmen Square came down on the CBS feed. And so it was that kind of unfiltered footage. Now you'd see more of that because of people's phones, but back then... You know, I was used to kind of curated news that you would just see on the evening news. And and it was initially the flowering of democratic protests, you know, scenes that look a lot like Hong Kong or the early days of the Hong Kong protests today. And then, but what I happened to see that day was when the Chinese government decided no more. And they just went in and they basically stampeded, you know, the the, the sort of... Uh, the gatherings and the demonstrate the demonstrators, and then it wasn't that very day, but a day or two later, there was the immortal image of Tank Man, uh, the man who was coming home with his shopping. You remember in his white Oxford shirt and his gray slacks, and he had his two little shopping bags, and he just stood in front of the tank. And um, and what I remember from the time, which which we all remember, the, many of us remember the photo, which is so iconic of him standing in front of the tank and just the dignity in that and the strength and the God knows the bravery in that. But what he actually did on the video is he 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 basically every time the tank tried to move, he would run with the tank, and he didn't want to let the tank leave. And at one point, he climbed up on the turret and began talking to whoever it was, probably some terrified you know, Chinese soldier inside the tank. Um, and they had some kind of conversation, and then he came off the tank, and he continued to try to do that dance, and eventually was hauled away and hasn't been heard from since, unfortunately. Um, but for me, I did not have some kind of epiphany of, wow, okay, now I'm going to go, and one day I'm going to be UN ambassador and um, promoting LGBT rights and uh, human rights at the UN. I mean, I, it was much more modest. It was just... Is there more? You know, can I learn more? Can I, when I go back to campus in the fall, can I dig in to my academic, the academic side of my life? Can I read more? And, you know, I had been a huge reader when I was in Ireland, but when I came to America, I got so swept away with all the TV stations and the, and the sports. And, and so I went back and I, I sort of reverted to, to being, becoming a reader again and just got much more serious. And then once you know, this gets to sort of the stages of idealism, you can think that there is injustice in the world and still, as I would have at that time, and I'm sure you had experiences like this too, think that, you know, his fate involves you in some way, but that doesn't mean you can do anything about it. You know, you and I would still have had profound humility in thinking, well, what do I have to offer 
human rights in the world. You know, I'm, um, and and so part of the the what I try to do in the book is is encourage particularly young people to to not, to know that everybody has those thoughts, right? Of feeling small in the face of really big problems and. That's no reason to be deterred. That's a reason to get to try to get smarter and to try to get experienced and to try to, you know, think about small changes you can make. But but for me, that was a transition point, at least in kind of, I, I still wanted to be a sports reporter, but I wanted to go back and feel more informed about events that were happening in the world at, at the very least. And I, it's almost, I think, it does a disservice when I say you became a war correspondent or a journalist because you were more than a journalist. You were an advocate, right? You used your journalism to tell stories. I mean, your book, A Problem from Hell, Pulitzer Prize-winning book, but I think shaped how a lot of Americans, fit myself, think about genocide in the world. And you use the platform from that to directly lobby policymakers on how to prevent these problems, to address these atrocities. And you, like, so you were an outside advocate. How did you make the decision to go from being outside the system and pushing it to coming inside the system and trying to change it from within? Gradually, again, and, and not with, at any point with, with any grand ambition about, about where it would land, but rather, so I went to Bosnia. I was a reporter there. I, was, I had the most amazing set of friends who are still my closest friends in the world, um, and um, many of them have left journalism like me, but one is working at the ACLU, another at Human Rights. I mean, this was a really formative experience for all of us. And, um, but the experience of being there and of, of when we arrived, we were kind of ambassadors of hope. We represented powerful countries. The Cold War had just ended. The international system seemed to be just sort of beginning to to gear up and beginning to be able to solve collective action problems, you know, sort of fulfilling the early promise that it had after the UN founding, but promise that had been extinguished by the Cold War. And so suddenly there was this hope that particularly Western countries, democracies would um, would deal with problems like this. And of course, that's easier said than done. And it was an incredibly complex conflict on one level, but it was also rape camps and concentration camps and emaciated men behind barbed wire in Europe in the 90s, 50 years after the Holocaust. And it was very jarring to somebody who was, of course, young and thought that never again meant never again. And and um, so my first experience was just on experiencing the limits of my journalism, of writing these stories, of, t- of describing what was happening to families who were being besieged in Sarajevo and ultimately getting it was really important actually that i i started as a as a i tell a story of as a, being an intern in washington and you know don't repeat this in your own lives but basically sneaking into someone's office stealing their stationery and pretending i was the correspondent <laughs> for foreign policy magazine which was not the foreign policy of today it was an academic journal and so the idea that they would have had a foreign correspondent in those days was nonsensical, but it was the only way I could get a press pass in order to go over there, and (laughs) horrible, horrible, Um, terrible, but nonetheless, here I am. Uh, (laughs) So, um, 
but not you know again in a, in a, in an era where we do want to distinguish and it shouldn't be very hard to distinguish <laughs> our ethics from another set of ethics or um you know again not something that I should be advertising but but I did that and in the sense that I was so determined to get over there and I was so determined to tell those stories and then eventually I cobbled my way to actually being the stringer for the Washington Post covering what would be the largest massacre in Europe in 50 years the massacre in Srebrenica and it was in a way, good that I had that string. They were called, you know, I had a bunch of different strings with different publications, but because it meant that I was writing, I felt, for President Clinton. And I, as you say, I had that in my mind. It, I wasn't writing op-eds. I was doing reporting, but I was very conscious that he was reading my, my, my work on, but above all, what he was reading what was happening because he was in Washington. And back then, you know, in a much simpler media environment, you sort of knew that the president was going to read the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. And so this was a big deal, and yet nothing was happening. And the planes were just flying overhead, and I felt just watching this all unfold. So the first step was a feeling of, you know, I, I'm, I'm wanting someone in Washington, Richard Holbrook, you know, to read my article and want to do something about what I'm describing that feels very inefficient and clearly not very reliable. And so the, fir the first judgment was maybe I could, is there some way to have a job where you're doing something yourself? And I thought I would go to law school and try to prosecute the people who'd carried out the massacre, like become, in that, at that time, international justice was just taking hold. But it was really, it was like as idle a fantasy as that. It was like, I'll go to The Hague and I'll be part of, you know, some police force that will track down these Cretans, you know, who've, who've just carried out this, this monstrous crime. But then when I was in law school, that started to feel like it was symptoms, not causes. But I still think I, you know, who knows, I might still be on that track. But then I got sidetracked because I really wanted to understand American responses to genocide. And so for a class in law school, I wrote a paper that then became a problem from hell five years later. And then Barack Obama kind of took care of the rest of my journey because <laughs> he read that book. And then suddenly there presented to me was the possibility. And I, I described that first dinner where I'm kind of shy and not sure, you know, can I at like, could I volunteer to go and work with him? And and, you know, he just wanted to have dinner and, and you know, maybe at some point send me chapters in his book, like, for comments. And I had gone to this very ambitious place, I mean, of thinking he wants to have dinner, like, he must want me to work with him. And I think it had never really entered his mind um, prior to the dinner. <laughs> but suddenly, here I am, you know, basically volunteering to be an intern in his Senate office, effectively, in, like, a cubicle. And, you know, at that time, the book was was sort of, well-read, and I was a professor. And Didn't you have a Pulitzer Prize at that point? I might have had a the Pulitzer Prize The first Pulitzer Prize-winning Prize intern in the history yeah, of the maybe, Capitol. Oh, yes. maybe. <laughs> yes. But it just seemed like here was this person who was so curious and, and you know, had these instincts that were very sharp, like instincts that led him to oppose the war in Iraq, which at a time when it was politically looked like that might, on top of his name, like the last thing, you know, between his name and having opposed the war in Iraq when it was massively popular you know, neither seemed like adaptive, <laughs> yes. you know, dimensions of his CV. And, and yet here he was, you know, grilling me on Rwanda, but also thinking about the parallels, which no, nobody was really thinking in quite these terms, at least that I had found, but the parallels between how do you get the invasion of Iraq so badly wrong and then how do you do the wrong thing in the face of the murder of a million people in Rwanda? You know, a lot of people think, 
that there are different lessons, but the way Obama was processing these, which I just found, you know, impressive and interesting, was when you neglect human consequences from your decision-making, that could lead to pulling peacekeepers out of Rwanda when a genocide is underway, or it could lead to invading Iraq when you have no plan for the aftermath and on false pretenses. I mean, so... So he, he was just going, his mind was going to, like, fresh places. And that, that, I think, is a through line of how he led on foreign policy is just there were no taboos exactly. It was sort of, there was a freshness to what he was bringing to a kind of pretty buttoned up and conventional conversation about what foreign policy should be. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California, Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. You arrive in the White House, you know, I think... Um, as you talk about in the book, it was sort of a bumpy path to get there because, you, as you mentioned, you had been kicked off the campaign for an intemperate remark about intemperate. the soon-to-be Secretary of State. Um, but you arrive at the White House, and you come into the White House with both a set of lived experiences in, the, in, this, in foreign policy and what's happening in the world, and a, re, and a very in a longer, deeper relationship with the president than most people who were now sitting around the table in the situation or whatever else. And you come in with, as an idealist, as, you, as the book is about, how quickly did you recognize the limits of idealism within the context of government once you were there? Day one? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and was, that a, was it a surprise? Well, maybe let me say one word just about how I got kind of rehabilitated. Um, such that I was even there because I did feel when I left the campaign and, and it was very painful because I loved the team. I love, you know, I loved sports my whole life and I'd worked alone my, basically my entire career, you know, whether as a journalist or a professor or writing a book and, and suddenly there was this team and I just loved it and I got so caught up and I just lost my temper and I screwed up terribly and then I had to leave the campaign. The good part about that is Cass had sent that stray email Cass and I had just started dating. I was definitely going to screw up that relationship. But because I was completely catatonic uh, <laughs> and my immune system was shattered by my, you know, public disgrace, I basically let him take care of me, you know, in the wake of that, you know, which now seems so small compared to other things, I suppose. But at the time for me was just to to be quoted as saying something mean about somebody who's dedicated her life to public service. It just made me crazy. But anyway, so Cass and I then got back together. And then as part of our wedding, um, the sort of interesting dimension of our wedding, we, you know, I was still off the campaign, not able to come back. Um, but Richard Holbrook, the famous negotiator, and I really recommend George Packer's amazing book, Our Man, which has just come out. Uh, but using his diplomatic skills, he brokered a meeting with Hillary Clinton for me, um, as a wedding present. <laughs> well, that's funny because I would not have thought that that, but that was Barack Obama's reaction. He's like, don't most people 
give toasters? <laughs> like, really? Uh-huh. You know, in that Obama way. And yeah. um, so, so that's how I got back. And so, but I felt that, you know, I still felt like I had a big scarlet letter when I got to the White House. And so questions of access, you know, and substance and how to prosecute my ideals got caught up a little bit with ego in me and, you know, shocking, right, in Washington. But, but you know, and, and, and just feeling, you know, am I not effective initially because I still carry the sense of being kind of unreliable or like a loose cannon or something? Or because I'm new to government and I don't know where the Oval is, because I'm five months pregnant and a woman in national security, when they're, you know, I think Liz Sherwood-Randall, she's right there. <laughs> um, one of my fellow women senior directors, there were 26, which is like the, the, the advisors basically to the president on different substantive issues. There were 26 senior directors, six women. Um, so was it because I was a woman or again, because they could look past you because you're about to leave, you're both a woman and you're about to leave because you're about to have a baby? Or was it because I was trying to promote human rights? I, you know, I didn't know why I felt like I wasn't getting traction. And it was, you know, probably some, I, I can't disaggregate. I mean, who can disaggregate? Um, uh, but with time, and not that long a time, once I understood, that, again, the language, and it was like being in Pittsburgh and practicing my American accent in a way, it was like, what are these expressions they're using? And all these, I write about these in the book, the gendered expressions you know, well, you know, we're going to have to show some leg when we go into those no, those negotiations, or I, I think we've got to be open kimono on that. Like, <laughs> but here's how bad it, it, it gets. It infects your brain and your soul. Because I found myself saying, you know, well, we just can't be half pregnant. And meanwhile, I was more than half pregnant. <laughs> I was like five months pregnant. And... Uh, but, you, you know, you figure it out. And I didn't have that. I mean, I tell the story of seeking recognition of the Armenian genocide, which was a promise that we had made in the campaign and believing that even with the strategic equities with Turkey that this was the right thing to do and that it, we'd pull the Band-Aid off and then we'd free diplomats into the future from having to contort and, you know, just basically say things that weren't true. And so that was the first example of just just clearly failing to, to, and you could call that an ideal, but I felt it was also in our interests, all things considered, again, to, to, to be on the other side of this just thorn in that relationship. But the president went in a different direction, and you know, as the, that, I found that extremely stressful and disappointing, um, such that, as I tell in the book, my water broke uh, in actually, it looks like maybe in the conversation with the president when I was arguing my case, um, but if not then, then right after when I was crying about having failed to persuade him. Um, so I had moments like that. But then you just, the stakes are so high. And the privilege, that was what Cass made me do, is every night he would make me walk the wrong way home, you know, out of the White House. Like, we, like take us circuitously around the front of the White House just to make me look and to remember that we are here and we won't be here for long, you know, even if we're lucky enough to have a second term, we won't be here for long in the scope of history. And every day, it's about kind of choosing your battle. And if you lose one, there's so, especially when it comes to human rights and American foreign policy, there's so many to be fought. And to gradually gain confidence, and to Holbrook, again, was very influential here. He was just, it, it, you, you tend at the beginning to be a little bit 
to internalize the kind of hierarchy of the media or the hierarchy, even even the president's hierarchy, and say, oh, I want to be in the in the meetings about how we're going to get out of Iraq or what we're going to do about Afghanistan. And because I talked to Obama about those issues for so many years, I was hurt kind of not to be in the center of things. And Holbrook's like, it's great. You know, do you know I me? Mean? People in those meetings, I mean, those me- they're just talking in circles. You know, you can find out what happens in the meetings. There's so many leakers in the meetings. You just read about it in the newspaper, <laughs> you know. Just go do something where, where, you know, go where they ain't. Go where it's, you know, they, what can feel like obscure issues, but where leadership and caring from the White House, where you can elevate something. And, and that is the story, really, that I tell is sort of, okay, you're, you're hitting a wall here. How do you reroute in a way that renders you more effective on, beha- on behalf of what you've come to do? You mentioned... Um you know, when you lose a debate or you lose a, a politician goes in the opposite direction, one of the, you know, you very famously argued for intervention in Syria and that went in a different direction than you had advocated. What, like looking back on it now, what do you think could have been done differently? And how do you, in, like, what is, like how that debate played out within the White House? What does that tell you about how people see American power now? Yeah, I mean, I think I have a lot of, I hope it, it, it's reflected in the way the words come across to others, but I intend to have a lot of humility in discussing Syria because I think I just don't know how to talk about it without it. I mean, given the complexity, given the devastation of what was happening in Syria to this day, 500,000 people killed, the refugee, half the population, full half the population displaced, many, as we know, to neighboring countries, comprising then that refugee flow across Europe, potentially impacting the face of European politics, and even with Brexit, the European Union, um, you know, maybe, you know, for for the foreseeable future, if not forever, maybe impacting our election. And so on, on the negative, it's sort of, you know, when we look back at our performance for all of our efforts, and, you know, this is not like the cases in A Problem from Hell, where you know, you get the 100 days of the Rwandan genocide and it, there's never even a meeting at the White House with the president about what to do. Like, it just doesn't even rank. I mean, Syria, <laughs> no shortage of discussions, no shortage of batting around what you can do to make things better, and yet fundamentally bumping up against what I would call, like, the limits of the toolbox. You know, I always talk about the toolbox and how you can do diplomatic things and economic sanctions and rally peacekeepers and observers and, you know, that you could, there's so many steps you can take that are a feature of U.S. leadership, especially multilateral steps, that don't bring you up against the really hard questions and the really dangerous questions surrounding military force. But Syria is that case in point, right? It's all of those other tools and then the Assad regime backed by Russia and Iran just going full, fully brutal, right, on the population and undeterred by any of those other steps. And so, um, but the reason the president, you know, um, didn't employ military force, and I'll come to your question in just a sec, but was looking at the sectarian dynamics that went, even beyond and, and were part of Assad's brutality, but also uh, arguably went beyond it, looking at the range of armed groups who grew up in the opposition. And when you're in the Situation Room, you, you really come into <laughs> close contact with the number one experts in the government on the issue at hand. And you, on the one hand, you're so, it's so impressive, 
but on the other hand, you see the limits of, of what you know about the places, what, you, what even the experts know about the places you're talking about. So that's the kind of stew of variables that, you know, as I grapple with it prospectively in the book, but then I also reflect on it retrospectively that sort of come into play. But I think to your very specific question about what would we do differently, two things I'd say. I mean, between 2011 and 2013, 2013 is when the big chemical weapons attack occurred in August when 1,400 people were gassed to death, including 400 children in Syria. Um, but in between the beginning of the Arab Spring and that, we did not have a diplomatic push. I've heard Ben actually make a version of this point, but we didn't, there was no, that what you saw from John Kerry on Iran or at the tail end on Syria or even on Yemen, again, not, not bearing fruit on Yemen, um, bearing fruit on Iran, not bearing fruit on Syria. I mean, again, you, you, you can do it all. It doesn't mean it works. But I don't think we can look back on that 2011-2013 period and, and say we left everything, you know, on the, you know, on the mat. You know, you know that, that, that there was that concerted effort. Now, it was complicated because then we didn't have relations with Iran. We hadn't done the nuclear deal. And so, get, you know, the, all the taboos, again, that existed around even, even having conversations with that regime were there. But that's one moment. And then the second is... And again, I think reasonable people can definitely disagree on whether using military force would have mitigated some of those horrible consequences that I just described. But I, I think it's very hard to argue that announcing that you're going to use military force and saying you're just about to go and do it and then changing your mind and seeking congressional approval, again, I think seeking congressional approval every war we're fighting today, we're doing still on the back of the 9-11 authorization. That's crazy. Forcing Congress to own its responsibilities is exactly what we need to be doing at a time when people are more and more skeptical about our foreign policy. Absolutely. But for sure, and especially in the Iran context today, but we had announced to the world that we were going to go and do something. And, and several days later, we then effectively rerouted, went to Congress and hadn't really run the numbers or done the outreach before doing so, had kind of assumed, and this will sound very naive, but that Republicans who had supported the use of, and we're talking just about limited military action, sort of similar, I suppose, to what President Trump did um, early in his, his tenure, just to try to deter the very specific use of this weapon, but then hopefully to catalyze diplomacy, so, again, I don't want to exaggerate what the impact would have been, either at, on the positive and negative. I don't think one can. Um, but I think it's it, what ended up happening is Republicans who had supported using limited military force, let's say, on a Monday, as soon as President Obama decided to come to them, both because of the understandable skepticism in the American public, but also because they wanted to do the opposite of whatever Barack Obama wanted, they were on the other side of him, and the Democratic Party because of the, again, understandable skepticism about using force in the Middle East, was very split. Many supported the president on this limited use. But that, I don't think, I mean, it'd be interesting if Liz or you, Dan, but others agree who were in the administration, but what ended up happening in that sequence is we ended up showing the world that the commander-in-chief couldn't summon the support for something that he deemed, he had already announced, was in our national interest. 
And what you saw after that was Assad showing such a level of impunity as he just grew more and more savage, but also Putin, both in his intervention in Syria, his his military actions and, and brutality in Syria, but also arguably in other places like Ukraine and maybe even here. I think that whole experience, um, which was right towards the, I guess not the end of my, it was towards the latter half of my tenure in the White House, but it does speak to something broader other than that specific decision, which is as someone who has written about genocide, talked about uh, atrocities happening around the world and urged American intervention, including military intervention, what does it say to you that even that there, you was, there was, not, was not a constituency within America. Liberal, it's one of the few things Republicans and Democrats agree on. Is there was not a constituency for a limited military strike to respond to chemical weapons in Syria. Like, if, it's, if you can't pass that test, like, where, does that mean there's nowhere that the world, that the U.S. would go? Um, well, let me say this first. I mean, you know, I, I, even though... Um, Today, I think that is it, it does feel that way. Um, you know, if you play out what happened back then, and I, I mean, I'm more interested in today than, than what happened back then, but, um, you know, President Obama did improvise. Somehow he managed, and he's going to write about this, I know, in his own book, but he managed through smoke and mirrors to kind of convince Putin that notwithstanding what Congress was saying and doing or not doing, uh, that the specter of military force was still live. And Putin ended up, you know, basically um, making what was for then a very big concession, which was working with us to dismantle the vast majority of the chemical weapons, which this was before ISIS's takeover of all that territory. And and God knows what would have happened if ISIS had had its hands on these weapons alongside the regime. And so, you know, something positive came out of the specter of military force. And I say that because I think you can hold two seemingly contradictory views at once, which is military force uh, really does, I think, in almost all circumstances, need to be a last resort, is something that, um, particularly in light of the um, the recent track record and the, and the way that one sector of our society has borne this burden, you know, almost exclusively for so long, you know, on fifth, sixth tours, um, you know, it needs to be a last resort. It needs to be in, you know, in circumstances in which we're acting in self-defense or collective self-defense by and large. But that doesn't preclude, and I think now, as you know from from where we are in our domestic debate, there's a bit of a conflation, I feel, in some circles between U.S. leadership in foreign policy and the U.S. use of military force. And they're really different propositions. Um, and, you know, when, when you, I say that, I say, well, what about the Paris Agreement? Or what about using the U.S. military to end the Ebola epidemic in West Africa? People say, oh, well, that's not, that's not using military. Well, it was actually using our military force in a humanitarian way, you know, granted in a, much, in a hugely difficult environment, but in a consensual environment. So I think it can simultaneously be true that you should be extremely one can look at that tool, like in a context of Iran, and, and think it's a really bad idea, but it is not necessarily, it does not necessarily follow that the United States advertising to the world that it will not use military force or can never get domestic support to use military force, that that, would, that, that in and of itself would make the world safer. I'm not sure, 
because, again, there are bad actors who would like nothing more than for it to just be, there to be kind of no rules, no enforcement, no coalitions, no NATO, which is something the president sometimes seems to want as well. Um, this president. So this, sorry, yes, yes. They, very much this president. Yes. Um, so if you see what I'm saying, I think it's yeah. still good that you have tools in the toolbox and to be so trans, and that's what happened in the wake of 2013, is the limits of what America could do or would do were so transparent that, you know, the kind of stagecraft and statecraft that you sometimes need to do where you, so you don't have to use tools of that nature and you invoke deterrence and, and, and use, I mean, we have a very large military. It would be very nice not to have to use it, but if people believe that you will never use it, that's a, a, a sort of dangerous world, particularly in light of China's rise and, and Russia's irredentism and desire to kind of rewrite the rules. We're going to take a couple questions from the audience here. Great. This one uh, is loaded. Can we, can we ever recover our reputation in the world? Hmm. Um, and it's, I mean, we should, it's very important to point out that you, probably, you had as close a front row seat to America's relationship with the world as anyone sitting there as the ambassador of the UN. You, more than anyone else in the government, you were interacting with our allies and our adversaries on a regular basis. Um, definitely, I mean, in one day to be surrounded by the world. I mean, John Kerry gave me a run for his money because he managed to be in like 17 countries in one day, uh, often um, in his indefatigability. But uh, but yes, it, it, it was a unique vantage point and a, a remarkable vantage point from which to see the world. Um, I mean, to state the obvious, we can't ever pretend that this history hasn't happened. And there there is a bit of a, a tendency, you know, in our history and being very powerful for a long time, you know, to kind of, the baton gets handed over, let's, you know, hope in the event of a defeat uh, that there would be a, a, you know, a handover of the baton. I'm imagining Trump kind of hanging on to the bottom of the couch, like <laughs> being pulled by his feet, you know, out the, out the door, um, even after, uh, you know, uh, an over, even with a large margin of defeat, that's probably some version of what the scene is going to look like. But maybe the desire to keep everything intact will, you know, <laughs> offset the desire to stay forever. But, um, uh, but so we, we can't pretend that this history hasn't happened, and it's both the harms of what is, has happened and is happening, namely, you know, we have walked away from a deal that peacefully ended Iran's nuclear program and or was ending it and was verified to have ended it. And so we have done harm in the world by backing out of a deal that was working and you know, actually ending up in a situation where having united the world against Iran, even uniting Russia and China with us on, on really tough sanctions against Iran in order to end its nuclear program, we've now succeeded in uniting much of the rest of the world with Iran in opposition to our policy. But, but the real harm is in Iran restarting, you know, different aspects of its program in, in response. And so there's a harm that has been done that has to be cleaned up. There's a harm you know, and, and here in San Francisco to stress, you know, on climate change, just the lost time, right? And, and the greater emissions. I mean, the, the fact that we walked away from what we acknowledge were not sufficient commitments in Paris that were just a floor so that we would 
pocket what we could, get the Chinese, lock the Chinese and Indians who didn't want to do anything because they feel, understandably, that they haven't finished their, um, their development story, that we, we, we've, we have our, you know, we, we do our emissions and we have our industrial revolution and we do our uh, polluting. And then uh, at just the time they're trying to pull their people out of poverty, we go to them and say, no, 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 you, you, you know, now you've got to go and transition and do all these other things before you've had your time to develop. And they found that very frustrating. But because we made the commitments we did, we were able to get them past what had been really a generation of objection to being asked to make the sacrifices and the commitments that they need to make in order to help the planet. So there's the harm to the planet of these lost years and in not leading, in not pushing those countries to do more. But then, and those are just two examples, of course, there's a litany of examples, but then there's what does it mean when, let's say, you know, one of the, the Democratic primary candidates takes over in January of 2021, what does it mean when they go to do the sequel to Paris? Well, first to get us back in line with our commitments and make sure we meet those, but then to push ourselves to go further domestically. And then we go to other countries, okay, now here are our new commitments, what are you going to do? What are, what are China and India going to say? They're going to say, well, what if some other schmuck gets elected mm. in four years and then, then what? Then we you do this. We we bite the bullet. If you're Iran, we bite the bullet domestically with the hardliners. And now you want to come back and you want to make nice. So that's the bad news, right? Is the intrinsic harms and then the sort of footstep effect of ripping up all of these commitments that America has made, which then will cast doubt on future commitments, even as we try to clean up what's been done and then try to do more um, in a world that needs U.S. leadership. But the good news is that right now we're not in a China-led world order, right? We're in a leaderless world. That's not the good news. But it, with that backdrop, there remains a great hunger for U.S. leadership. And, and this is something I remember Barack Obama saying just after election night, the kind of crazy, surprising, horrible feeling that we all had of just... But just having been so wrong about about what was going to happen on election night, but then imagining much of what has ensued. And Obama said something else that I think is a source of hope, which is that there's a baseline that was set in those years. I mean, in foreign policy, for example, there were taboos that were confronted that people said could not be confronted. I mean, do you remember how people used to talk? I know this is a small thing, but people how people used to talk about Cuba, you know, you know, you can't, you know, you can't do anything with Cuba. If you touch the embargo, if you even talk about the embargo, Florida is going to, you know, fall into the Republican Party for the rest of time or fall into the ocean or, you know, it was... Picture poison. Yeah, yes. picture poison, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, if you, I mean, to talk to Iran. And now we have a Republican president, um, you know, talking to North Korea, talking to Iran. I mean, maybe we could get to a place where we could have a reasonable bipartisan acknowledgement after years of the stigmatization of engaging adversaries that actually in order to get things done you kind of have to engage rogue actors and that's an important part of getting the work done that you need to get done for the country and so so there is a ba- I don't think that the even though things are being ripped up for sure there is a set of baselines but it's going to be the trust deficit for our electorate you know more than for the particular leader it can happen here it can happen here. Yeah. This happened. Whatever it is, like this happened here. And so 
that is going to be a break. And, and even in, in our years, I'm pointing to Liz in the, in the front row and, and you, Dan, I mean, remember how long it took. We, there was the economy to pull out of uh, such a, a grave and deep recession, and that took a, you know, a long time. And, of course, still the effects are being felt, and, and you know, there's more risk today as well because of the underlying structural problems. But, but there's that. But t- think of how long it took us, even after the Bush years, because of the invasion of Iraq and torture and all of that. And most of Obama's foreign policy achievements, even in that context, which I think is not as as bad as Iraq is and was, you know, the sum total of the attacks on democratic institutions here, attacks on the media, the, you know, rewriting what America is and whether it's a nation of immigrants or not, um, you know, all of the, the, you know, we're going to be in an even bigger hole. And it took us even, I think, until the second term, until all of that work, you could sort of clear the brush, you know, restore, and then begin to build. And so it's a question of time, but it's a question also of, I think, the margin of victory for the Democratic candidate. I'm not, believe me, I'm not taking a victory for granted, but a, a solid repudiation where we can point to it and say, you know, not only was Trump an aberration, but Trumpism is something that has been repudiated in an enduring way. Another question from the audience. What advice would you give to an aspiring human rights lawyer and fellow idealist fresh out of law school? Um, so two things, I guess. I would say uh, know something about something. Uh, yeah, right, in, especially in this era where facts and expertise are not being valued in the way that they should be. But, but I would have said this I think, or at least I think I learned this maybe in my early 30s, but sometimes, especially when you're a human rights lawyer, there's just, um, whoa. I mean, just the number of issues you could be focused on today in just here in San Francisco or just in some, uh, you know, suburb of San Francisco or in some part of this town and and how to how to go deep um, in order to refine your ability to actually make change, so so go deep and thick, and and be pre- being prepared and being rigorous, because ideals really they're they they're what get you out of bed in the morning, but they don't render you effective, right? If anything, they can blind you, they make you think that just because you, you know, you have a what in your own mind is a righteous cause, that that's somehow enough. I mean, that doesn't even that doesn't get you anywhere, right? It's, it's, it's how do you advance those ideals in your courtroom um, or, you know, wherever it is you're putting your legal skills to use. So that would be one thing I'd say. And then the second, and this is a theme of the book, is, um, and I, I said this, uh, made a version of this point at the beginning, but we all feel so small, or like, I'll speak for myself, maybe I'm projecting, but, um, <laughs> you know, I felt this way even when I was a member of the president's cabinet, I felt small next to 67 million displaced people in the world, the highest number since World War II, next to the pace of warming uh, in the, on the planet. And I was a UN ambassador. I was in a position to help on the Paris negotiations and to help Secretary Kerry and the president. And, and yet, it just felt like anything was small. And one of the stories I tell in the book um, is of using this concept of shrink the change uh, which comes from a book called Switch um, by actually a Stanford professor and a Duke professor, the Heath brothers. 
but it's about how when the problems feel at their largest, that's precisely when it's really important to kind of define what your slice of the solution can be. And I think this is a bit countercultural, the point I'm making now, because we're in a kind of revolutionary big change moment. And I'm not saying, I think that the articulation of these objectives are exactly right, but I'm talking about the individual, right? Even if you if you are, you know, think that Elizabeth Warren's biggest and boldest plans are exactly where we have to be, you still have to wake up in the morning and think, what is my piece of contributing to her realization of those objectives? And so I, Barack Obama puts it, I think, beautifully we, when we were having an argument, in, in, and I described this in the book, and he's like, Sam, better is good. And then he paused, and he's now, he's said this publicly as well, but he he pauses for dramatic effect, and he's like, hey, you know what? Sometimes better is a hell of a lot harder than worse. (laughs) (laughs) And so just remembering that, and and the reason I say it is because you can get demoralized so quickly because, again, even if you help one asylum case, one, one person applying for asylum, and then you turn on the news you know, you as a human rights lawyer feel like what you've done is, is so small. But for that one person, it's the universe. This will be our last question for the evening. This is a question. I did not write this question, but it is a question that I also had. At the end of the final year, the documentary about the final year of the Obama administration, uh, a crazy karma decision to do that documentary, but we'll put that aside. Uh, at the end of that documentary... It's our fault. Not Putin. No, I'm just, if I had worked at the White House, I definitely would have nixed that. <laughs> Superstitious. <laughs> At the end of the final year, you made a comment after the election that any hope of Obama administration officials, that Obama administration officials could go off into the night was gone. Aside from writing your memoir, which I loved, The Questioner, and me. uh, Fast readers. Yes. (laughs) What efforts have you made or do you plan on making to remain on the national stage? And I would amend the end of that question is, can you see yourself going back into government or, or engaging in it? In the, in the specific work of actually undoing the damage that has been done since this, the final year? Um, sh- sh- Cass uh, is not listening, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you, um, how many of you watched the, t- t- this is really obscure, but the TV show Lost? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so do you remember the scene where Jack says to Kate, we have to go back, Kate? <laughs> so Cass says that to me basically four times a week. Um, <laughs> And he actually says, we have to go back, Kate. Because <laughs> everything, <laughs> for non-lost viewers, that may be just too obscure. But, you know, I mean, for now, honestly, one of, I mean, in the realm of foreign policy, just in the narrow compared to the larger challenges we're facing and the harms being inflicted. But um, there is, it is the case that there is, in certain quarters, a loss of faith in American leadership in the world. And so I don't think it's a coincidence and and also just a lack of prioritization of this set of issues. And so this book is very personal and it, it is maybe too personal. Uh, you'll be the judge, but, but it's, I wanted to kind of open up, you know, trying to be a war correspondent and trying to work in the Senate and trying to be on a political campaign and trying to make change in government and, just show one person's effort to do that, not because it was so overwhelmingly successful, but because 
the, the, when we made an impact, it was meaningful. And it was deeply meaningful to me. It's the most meaningful, the, the, my government service especially, the most meaningful work that I've had the chance to do in my career, despite all the disappointments that I, that I also describe in the book. But I'm, I'm mentioning this, Dan, because I think being now on the outside, you know, Barack Obama's constantly now himself on the outside quoting uh, Louis Brandeis, who says that the most important office in any democracy is not that of president, but that of citizen. But I... I wrote this way, this book sort of relatably, you know, through my own foibles on one level, uh, because I do think some of this is about numbers, and and this is why Pod Save America is such a gift to our country and and such a contribution, mm-hmm. because it's about drawing. I mean, really, you know what it was like in government, and you know what it was like on the campaign. The better the people you had. The more rigorous the were, they were, the more stubborn they were, the more resilient they were, the more dedicated they were, um, you got better outcomes. And so some of this is, you know, whether, as Obama says, you're young or young at heart and haven't given, as long as you haven't given up, it's about pulling, activating people around the cause of reclaiming our democracy. So, yes, I would love, we, we have to go back, Kate, Dan, you're now Kate. We have to go back, Kate. <laughs> My uh, wife says a version of that to me as well. Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely have to go back, Kate. But it's also the case that making it work requires a thicker base for what we were doing. And, and that's what you all have done, particularly with young people. That's what I'm aspiring to do in a small way. But that may, means before, you know, I used to teach as a means to write or, or you know, to have, a, to have a salary to be able to go to my different places overseas to learn. And now I teach to teach also because, you know, I do think that young people being steeled for how hard it is and being ready for, for what they're going to confront, you know, at least increases the odds that they get back up for the next fight and the next fight. And because on the other side, they seem pretty resilient and they have a shitload of money (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, and so we got to have numbers and and just such willfulness um uh, to take things back and and to make the reforms and the changes and and to realize the values uh that that can define america thank you you. ambassador ambassador smith the power Thank you for your book. Thank you for your voice. Thank you for your friendship. And thank you for being here tonight. Give it up for Sam Power.